Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane, and it is episode 177. Got a good one for you, party people, today. Kyle Rickey of Killingly, Connecticut, and the Motor Racing Network, and Stafford Speedway, is on with us today. Kyle and I go way back, in his words, not mine, but I agree. Um, he is a very interesting guy. He's got his hands in a lot of different pots. I feel like a lot of different guys at the Motor Racing Network do. I mean, we obviously know what Alex Hayden's done. We've had him on the pod, Striegel, same with him at Berlin. Kyle and Stafford Speedway, they are kind of a match made in heaven, but that just scratches the surface and is the tip of the iceberg. So excited for you guys to hear from him. Also going to discuss briefly the West Coast swing coming to a close. Will he be winning again? Not before some penalties came down the pipe at HMS, and they are hefty. Man. Before we do any of that, we got to throw it to our Wayback segment with my father, Papa Siegel, who's going to help us pay homage to the number 77. Hope it's lucky for you because it ain't for me. What you got? Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 177. Last time through the numbers, we looked back on early NASCAR campaigner Joe Lee Johnson, who won the inaugural World 600 in 1960 at the brand new Charlotte Speedway by four laps and had to steer his way around holes in the track in the process. Like I say, they were different times, my friends. Today, we focus the Wayback Lens on a driver who ran 473 cup races, 76 of them in the 77 car, over a 17-year career with no wins. He ran 121 Bush Series races over 12 years with only one win. He also raced in the trucks and the cast car series. No wins there either. So... You're all probably wondering if Papa Siegel has lost his mind about now, right? I guarantee you that's what Davey is thinking. Would you feel differently if I told you that our focus of this week's Wayback Machine is Dave Blaney? Yes, that Dave Blaney. Father of current hotfoot Ryan Blaney. Perhaps one day the elder Blaney may be more well-known for being the father of a famous son than for his own accomplishments. That's a fate I'm happily settling into myself. But for today, let's give Dave Blaney his proper due. The NASCAR results may not show it, but Dave Blaney was a serious wheelman. I always considered him to be one of those drivers whose talent eclipsed the quality of the equipment he was given to race. I knew he was a serious sprint car talent, but didn't realize just how big his accomplishments were. He was the 1984 USAC Silver Crown champ and the 1995 World of Outlaws champion. He won at Eldora multiple times. He won the Chili Bowl. And he won the Gold Cup and the Knoxville Nationals, 
maybe the biggest prize in sprint car racing. Dave Blaney was inducted into the Sprint Car Hall of Fame in 2014, but don't think he's finished. Blaney is still getting it done at the ripe old age of 60. In May of 2021, he won the World of Outlaws Sprint Car feature at his home track of Sharon Speedway in Ohio, setting series records for both the longest gap between victories, his previous win in the Outlaws had come in 1997, and oldest driver to win in the series at 58. The old man ain't done yet, young Ryan. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. Yeah, the Buckeye Bullet, he is still getting it done. YRB knows that. He and uh, Ryan raced at Sharon last year in the SRX series. I think that uh, that may not be the last time they race together. I, I was really excited watching that for both of them. It was really cool to watch. Uh, same when Bill and Chase did it at the Nashville Fairgrounds, and I think they finished 1-2. Um, so even though Dave Blaney did not have the most successful NASCAR Cup Series or National Series career, didn't win a race, that does not mean that his legacy is felt still to this day in the form of his son, Ryan, but also just on dirt tracks nationwide to countryside. He is absolutely legendary in those different spheres, and he's still tearing it up. So thank you, Papa Siegel, for paying homage to the Buckeye Bullet, Dave Blaney. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned and throw it straight over to our interview with Kyle Ricky of the Motor Racing Network and Stafford Speedway. Among other things, he has been at MRN for pretty much 20 years, which is crazy to think about because I don't consider him to be that old. So sorry, Kyle, I may be aging you, but he has done an incredible job over the years of honing his craft, not only with MRN, but also at Stafford. And he got into a lot of detail about how that racetrack and the ownership there has kept up with the Joneses and adjusted and adapted to the changing times in society and how that relates to motorsports. Found that conversation interesting. Also found his background and how he got involved in motorsports in general and radio as well. Found that fascinating. Just another cool cat, another awesome guy even though he's an adult Disney fan, and I know some people may feel a certain type of way about those people. Kyle is unapologetically one of them, but the way that he talks about Disney, it makes me want to go back myself. So without further ado, let's get to my chat with Killingly Connecticut's finest, the selfie taker himself. You'll understand later. Kyle Ricky. Pleasure to welcome on to the show tonight, as we're recording this, it is the Motor Racing Network and Stafford Speedway's finest, Killingly <laughs> Connecticut's Kyle Ricky, ladies and gentlemen. My first question to you, as I just posed to you before we started recording, at 8.04 p.m. on Wednesday, you have nothing better to do than just sit here for a little bit and talk to me at 8.04 p.m. on a weeknight? Come on. It, uh, this is what life has come to. I, I'll make time for you almost any time, Davey. We go way back. We do almost any time. I'm curious what those other times are, though. That's my question. I, don't know. I mean, you know, when I'm either in the turn or or at Stafford, you know, you might have to wait a little bit. But other than that, I got time for you. Well, that is that is high praise, and I am very appreciative of that and of your time. Um, I want to jump right into it because I feel like, like you said, we go way back. 
I've listened to you on the radio for a while. I know that you've been in the industry for going on a couple decades at least now. And I want to know the the backstory of how you got into motorsports, into radio. And I read that you actually started in radio, the industry as a whole, the day you turned 16 and you were legally able to go into the radio station to work. You were there. So clearly, this was something that you had thought of long before you were ready, willing, and able to. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, it started with motorsports. Um, as a kid growing up, I was introduced to motorsports with monster trucks. Uh, and I'm Love still it. a Monster Jam fan, but we went to a, a monster truck event, my dad and I, um, many years ago. And it was an event that was kind of incorporated with a stock car race uh, at the, uh, I think it was the Waterford Speed Bowl here in Connecticut. There were a couple of monster trucks there, but they also raced that day. Discovered motorsports pretty much um, on that afternoon. So started following NASCAR um, on television. 1989, 1990-ish. So that's how my love of the sport came to be, through a monster truck show here locally in town and and through some of the local short tracks at at Thompson, Stafford, and Waterford. In high school, I kind of fell into a a video communications class, um, video tech as it was called back then. There was another student in that class that worked at the local radio station that said, hey, you should come and at least intern at the local station, see what it's about. Went and interned there for three months um, until the day I turned 16. Uh, Back then you needed a radio license to operate um, over the airwaves. I still have that radio license today, um, laminated and framed, which is pretty cool because they don't really require that anymore, but they did back in the mid nineties. And So, yeah. And so eventually I I took my love of radio and my love of motorsports, motorsports and merged them together. Um, Started the track announcing on all the tracks here in Connecticut, auditions in New Hampshire uh, back in 2002 with New Hampshire, the same day as Steve Post. And we've been there ever since now, 20 going on 21 years later. Wow. That's pretty awesome. So motorsports, as you said, that kind of was born from going to Monster Jam or Monster Trucks back in the day. Where did the infatuation and the passion for radio come from? Because like I said, clearly it was something that you've had for a long, long time. Yeah, I I think it was just working at the local radio station. Um, I I figured out, you know, I I can talk. I, you know, I was very, ironically enough, and you hear this a lot with, with a lot of the guys on the network, you know, we were shy in high school. We weren't very outgoing, or at least I wasn't very outgoing. Um, so it's kind of ironic that 20 years later, we're speaking in front of like 101,000 people at the Daytona 500, yeah. plus all of these folks listening on radio across, across the country and around the world. But I think it stems from the local radio station that that initial opportunity at Thompson to announce on a double feature night uh, with Russ Dowd, the longtime track announcer that gave this, what was I, 16, 17 years old at the time, kid a chance to do the the final of six feature events that night um, at 11 o'clock. You know, here's the roster. Here's the starting lineup. Go. And it worked out. Um, it worked out. So that's that's how we got here today in a in a nutshell 16 17 year old kid pretty much as green as they come what's that nervous you know i was so nervous i remember the first time i cracked the mic at the radio station 
it was a McDonald's, it was a McDonald's commercial, like a, a, like a live read. It was like two lines and I was so nervous. My mic needs to be up and adjusted properly. My mic needs to be on most nerve wracking thing I had ever done to that point until that late model race, that, that one night at Thompson at 11 o'clock with about 60 people in the grandstand. Mm-hmm. I didn't care to me. There were a million people there and it was, you know, it was the biggest moment for me. And it ultimately, you know, was, it worked out. And you were, you were like 16, 17 in that moment, right? Yeah, it was back in, in the mid nineties. So yeah, I was 17. I think when I did the audition at Thompson on the mic with, with Russ, and then they brought me on the next year. There was the management changes at Thompson in 98 and uh, was able to join the announcing team there. And yeah, I was 18 years old. So a lot of people, you know, they, they say that they're either nervous or it was no problem at all. No sweat born to do this type of thing. You clearly fell on the former side of the spectrum when you had some time after that night kind of finished up and you either got some feedback from Russ or anybody else at the racetrack. What were your initial thoughts then? Did you think, all right, I got through this. I feel like I got something here. Or were you a little bit skeptical? Yeah, I was skeptical. Um, heck, there are days I'm still skeptical, but I was especially skeptical back then. Um, it's like, I don't know if I can do this every night. You know, what if, what if there's a long red flag? What do I talk about? What if somebody blows an engine and oils down the whole racetrack and we have, you know, 30 minutes to kill? What do I do? A lot of what ifs, you know, how do I handle this situation, that situation, every situation's different. And, you know, I was still new. Um, I had been going to the races a few years, but there was a lot I was still unfamiliar with, including the drivers and the teams, which I later found out several years down the road that that's the most important part to get to know who you're talking about and you can get through about any length delay. Um, But at 16, I just wanted to call the races, right? I just wanted to be up in that tower announcing the races. Didn't have a whole lot of background like I probably should have had on the team. So that is that has helped me over the years, but very skeptical that first night. So growing up where I did in the mid-Atlantic, racing is not necessarily it's not it's not a hotbed area for it. And where you grew up and where you are now up in the northeast, that's modified heaven, racing rich. There's a lot of history there when it comes to competitors, racetracks, promoters, things of the like. Growing up for you, clearly, you know, still when you were kind of a kid, quote unquote, you were working at the racetrack and you were fully immersed in it. But what was living in that culture like for you growing up in the Northeast with modifies and ground pounders around you 24-7? That had to be pretty cool to live through that in the 80s and 90s. It was awesome. And, and but I was so young, I didn't know any different. I didn't realize, you know, that the culture was different down in the Carolinas or in California or in the Midwest, you know, and, and it is, you know, I think, you know, the more we travel, the more we see that that these racetracks and the cultures at those tracks are different. It was an amazing time. Um, you know, the car counts are great. The drivers were amazing. Um, you know, Ted Christopher, you know, comes to mind being able to to watch him at his peak, Mike Stefanik, to be able to watch him at his peak, to get to know promoters like Jack Aroot Sr., Donald Honig, who is still going strong today at, at 91 years old at Thompson, um, and, and to, you know, all the of the longtime employees, the, the, the announcers, Russ Dowd, amazing to be able to work with him. Ben Dodge, who I still work with at Stafford on, on select Friday nights. Um, 
it was a good time. Great people. And, uh, you know, thankfully, the, the sport is still in a very, very healthy place up in this part of the country, thanks to a lot of those people today. So I want to go a little bit of a different direction. We'll get back to the short track side of things in Stafford. I think you said 2002 is when you had your audition at New Hampshire with Posty. Is that when MRN came into the picture for the first time for you? Yeah, um, I had worked at New Hampshire Motor Speedway as an intern in the media center for Fred Neergaard for a couple of years. I learned that my boss at the local radio station uh, next town over where I started, um, Gary Osbury, went to college with Alan Bestwick, who at the time was the the anchor uh, for Motor Racing Network, he and Barney Hall. So I got a job shadow or a... uh, you know, a weekend shadow with the network in 98 and 99, worked for the media center in 2000 and 2001, circled back around in 2002, got an audition, and it was uh, Barney and Joe Moore in the booth, Kyle and Steve Post in the corners, and Ryan Horn on pit road with, I think, Gary Danko. And Gary was able to work a couple of races the next year, um, but he had job commitments up here and and couldn't commit full time to MRN. But uh, the rest of the three that auditioned that day are still at the network. So um, pretty, pretty cool day, pretty nerve wracking day. You know, it was a modified race. It started to rain as they took the green flag. Mm. We had to come back the next day and do a cup practice. So I was all thrown off, but it, it worked out. Did it give you any confidence that you're doing a modified race? Because I know a lot of people, they they get spun out calling trucks, cars, <clears throat> Jeff Striegel, uh, or yeah, they're just yeah. nervous, you know, being on the same airwaves as all these legends that, that you mentioned. That must have given you a little bit of comfort, I would think. It did. I w- you know, it's like I know of all the guys auditioning right now, I know these cars the best because, you know, they, they come to Thompson four times a year. They come to Stafford at the time four times a year. Waterford Speed Bowl, Seekonk Speedway. I'm around this all the time. So I know these guys and I'm a little bit in more of a comfort zone than probably, you know, Steve Post was at the time over in turns three and four. Um, But then it rained right as they took the green, half the field wrecked, and uh, we had to settle for a happy hour cup series practice session the next day. Well, clearly you did well enough that they liked you and you're still there. So good job. I appreciate it. I'll tell you what, the stress... You mentioned, you know, like Joe and Barney in the booth. One of my first nights at Stafford Speedway, uh, Spring Sizzler, uh, 2000, no, before that, 99. It was Mike Joy in the booth with Jack Aroot Jr. Mike Massaro was in turn three, and I was on pit road. So that was probably one of the more stressful nights. So by the time I got to the audition, I was I was used to having some some big names and some very familiar voices in my ear going to say big names are one thing big names that you know are another thing big names that you know that are from your turf that's right that's nerve-wracking man wow right so that's when kind of mrn came into the picture you said that you and posty were both in the turns that day we know steve obviously is on pit road nowadays for the motor racing network you still are out in the turns i, I don't know the answer to this because maybe i just haven't listened to mrn for as long as some other people have, have you always been a turn guy or were you working on pit road or in the booth at any point for any races? I've done uh, one race on pit road. Um, I was speedway years ago. It was fun. Uh, Dylan Welch wanted to swap. He's like, I want to do the turn today. 
Okay, I'll do pit road. Let's check with our producer, see if he okays it. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I would do it again. Um, but, you know, I, I go where I guess the need is. And there's the need for, for turn announcers right now with the network. Um, years ago at the time, there were a few guys that, that left the network uh, that had been longtime pit reporters, Marty Snyder, Adam Alexander. You know, they went on to television. Um, Jim Phillips retired. So they needed to fill those roles and they used Steve Post and, and a couple of others that came in at the time. I went to the turns. I've done, I don't know, I average now about 10, 12 booths a year. I'll be in the booth at Atlanta for the truck race. And, and there's a few others this year where I'll be upstairs. It's fun. Um, but most of the, mostly I'm in the corners. Do you find it difficult in terms of the skill sets that you need to possess for each of those different things, I guess for purposes of this conversation, we'll just say the turns compared to the booth. Do you find it difficult to kind of go back and forth for each of those different roles or is it pretty seamless for you? Right now it's seamless. At first it, it took some time to learn how to prepare to do the booth. I mean, you're in charge of, of the show, right? Your you're driving out there. Yeah. You're, you're driving the ship. Um, and there's so many things that you need to be aware of whether it be uh, on the production side of things, live reads, and obviously a, a pretty thick notebook and knowledge of, of what's going on in that garage, whether it be the truck series, the Xfinity series, or, or the cup series. And Mike Bagley has taught me well. He, he years ago showed me his notes. They are color coded. Here's everything that I have about every driver and every race that has ever been run on this racetrack. <laughs> and I've tried to, I've tried to, you know, do my best at, at copying pretty or, or be fairly similar to what, what he does on a weekly basis, but it's impressive. I don't do all the color coding stuff, but um, I, I do what's comfortable for me and, and it's taken more than a decade and I'm still figuring it out. You know, here's, here's what I use on a fairly regular basis. Here's what I never use, so we can eliminate that. Um, but but the more you do, the more comfortable you get, and the more you know you you understand what you need. I'm always curious to hear about people's processes of preparation. So you you just described yours for the Motor Racing Network. How does that differ from your preparation process when you're in the booth at Stafford on a Friday or Saturday night? Do those two differ at all, or are they similar? <laughs> No, I have adopted everything that I have done for MRN over the last decade to Stafford, whether it be the street stocks, the late models, the limiteds, the SKs, the SK lights. Every driver that competes every Friday night has a bio in my notes of their age, their hometown, their car owner, how many starts at the racetrack, how many wins, how long they've been racing there. Last time they won every stat you can think of. I've tried to to. Uh, work into my Stafford notes that I've been using on, on the, on the radio side of things. Very cool. Um, so I always like to talk to MRN or PRN anchors about the art of the toss, right? I've had yeah. baggy on the show. I've had Jeff on the show. Alex has been on here and I always ask them the same thing. Brad Gilly on the PRN side. Is it something that you learn? Or are you born with it? You obviously like we hear it all the time. You guys make it sound so seamless and, you know, having worked a little bit closer with you guys in the past, I see firsthand the push to talk button being hovered and yeah. then pressing it. You know, I see all these things. How did you master the art of the toss? And do you remember when you were able to finally figure it out? It's you learn it. 
you're not born with it. But I think all of us, we grew up listening to MRN. So you just hear it. You, we, we heard it for years when Alan and, and Joe and Eli and Barney were in the booth handing it off to Dave, or I guess Joe was in the turn, turn one before Dave, or Mike Massaro in turn three, um, Mike Joy, you know, big part of the network back when I first started listening to it. Um, and I think after, you know, decades of listening, you just, you figure it out. And I think, you know, we have all worked together so long on especially the cup side, Jeff and Alex and Mike and, and Dave and, you know, everyone that you mentioned posting, you know, 20 years now, we, uh, you know, we, 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 I guess, know the art and it just, I think it happens naturally, you know, and I mean, that's, there's not much to it other than it's been ingrained in our minds for decades, first listening and, and in the last, you know, two decades, you know, doing it. Listening to the uh, the scanner, the off-air feed, that's my favorite part yeah. of the weekend when I'm at the racetrack. Um, knowing you guys in a limited capacity as I have professionally and now personally, it's no secret that you guys are a very tight-knit unit, right? You guys are legitimately friends at the racetrack and outside of it. I have to think that that factors into you guys being able to seamlessly toss to and from one another because... It's not like, A, you've never worked with each other, but B, you guys do know each other on a personal level. So you're not coming into a cold turkey. Does that factor into things? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're all comfortable with each, with each other. We all trust each other. And I think trust is is huge. Um, you can tell the, the new folks that come in um, when they're not as comfortable and it takes them some time to get comfortable. Just knowing the format and the flow of a broadcast. Uh, you know, we had... So we've had some new people on pit road and, and they're getting it, but it doesn't happen overnight uh, for the rest of us that have been there. You know, the trust is there, the comfort is there. And, and, and no doubt the relationship that I have with these guys, you know, off the racetrack when, when we're at dinners and concerts and all these fun things that we do in and around the race weekends, um, you know, that carries over to, to the broadcasts on, on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. So give us a bit of a lay of the land. I know we got coast to coast NASCAR today. I've, I listen to NASCAR live today. I feel like every other segment you were conducting a full wide ranging interview, um, wide open sometimes crew call. What's, what's a typical day look like for Kyle Ricky as it pertains to MRN only. As it pertains to MRN, um, NASCAR hot pass is our morning drive show uh, Monday through Friday. I'll produce that either really early in the morning or the night before uh, that goes on, I don't know, a couple hundred radio stations across the country, NASCAR live every Tuesday, uh, I'll get uh, or write up scripts uh, to preview the race weekend or uh, do a news segment or sometimes both NASCAR coast to coast every Wednesday with Chris Wilner. We, uh, we film that and talk to short track drivers across the country. This week, Peyton Sellers uh, getting ready for the South Boston season to begin this uh, this weekend. It's Amazing. 40th year, 40th year of running late models uh, for the racetrack. And I think it's his 22nd year of participating at South Boston Speedway, looking to tie the all time championships uh, for, for that racetrack. So that's every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, you know, are often travel days. But we still do NASCAR hot pass every day. Monday morning race recap every Sunday night after an event. Uh, Mike Bagley and I kind of split that. What else? 
I don't know. It's not there's a lot. For me. Yeah, it's there's a lot going on uh, over the course of the week. I mean, I'll get you know requests from our producers. Hey, can you cut this commercial? Or hey, can you do this voiceover and yeah. um, get it done pretty quick? Uh, in and around everything that I do at Stafford. So. Yeah, I hear your voice in a lot of places, so I know it's a it's a busy <laughs> lifestyle for you. So I know you're in Connecticut now. Um, yep. You started out in Connecticut. You you weren't always there, right? Did you have a move down to Charlotte at one point, and when did that happen? That happened in 2007 when the Motor Racing Network relocated from Daytona Beach, uh, Daytona International Speedway, to where they are currently in Concord, just a few miles from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Mm -hmm. Uh, David Hyatt was the president at the time. He was looking to fill some roles. A lot of folks in Daytona elected not to make the move to Charlotte. And I was on his radar as at the time being a five-year contractor with the network. Um, so I said, yes, went to, went to Charlotte in 2007 at the end of that season and was there for almost 10 years. I know you obviously moved back to Connecticut. That's where you're at now. When did the move back occur and what were the reasons for that? That was in 2007-16. At the end of the 2016 season, move back, uh, you know, family was getting older. Um, I was getting older. You know, being in that NASCAR bubble 24-7, um, I don't want to say it was taking a toll, but it was taking a little bit of a toll. I mean, if there was a, if there was a press event, I was there. You know, the NASCAR Hall of Fame, you know, and it's when it first opened, there was stuff going on there all the time. And yeah. I was there all the time, every media tour, all the Charlotte Motor Speedway pressers. I mean, it was it was a very, very you know busy 10 years. GoPro Motorplex, when that opens, I was there, you know, with the ribbon cutting and cutting and then at all the media events. So, I mean, it was fun, but it was wearing and it was just time to, you know, to get back to the family. You know, there were, you know you know, four weeks wasn't enough anymore uh, of vacation time. And they understood and they worked with me uh, through the move. And, you know, I'm obviously still very much a part of the network, you know, five years after the move. Yeah. I, I've always kind of from the outside before I kind of went into the professional sphere, I always found it interesting because my whole life, it's always like, oh, if you want to work in NASCAR, you got to be in Charlotte. You got to get down there. Yada, 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 which I think is true to a certain extent, but yeah. MRN and PRN, I mean, they, are prime examples of having insanely talented people that do a really, really good job. And for the most part, the vast majority of them don't really live in that quote unquote bubble. Like you said, yep. I mean, I know Moody's down there. I know Posty's down there, Kim obviously, and a ton of other people, but Baggy right now is in Delaware, obviously. Uh, Dave has spent some time in the Northeast, obviously, uh, as yeah, well as in Michigan. So, yeah, right. I mean, there, there's a lot of different people that are in a lot of different geographic places in the country. Whenever we go out to the West Coast, I love hearing Dan Hubbard on the broadcast with you this past week in there. Phoenix. So it's it must be nice to kind of have an employer that allows you to essentially live your life outside of that quote unquote bubble. Because from what I've heard, not just from you, it can be exhausting and it can really take a toll. It is, especially this time of year. Um, you know, I, I don't know how like Alex and Jeff do it for four West coast trips in the first five weeks of the season that can take a toll. And I get all the teams do it, but most of those teams are on private planes and not having to deal with delays on Delta and American airlines or connections in Washington or Philly or Charlotte. Um, it can take a toll, you know, when you're losing, you know, two, two and a half days a week, just 
trying to get to and from, uh, especially the West Coast swing. It's rough. But, you know, you add all the weekends up throughout the summer and uh, it's a lot of time in airports. Uh, speaking of airports, you obviously travel a lot for your job. It's an enviable position. It's also an unenviable enviable position at times. Do you have like one airline or like one specific company you're loyal to and you rack up the points there? Or is it more so just kind of a hodgepodge? It, it's a hodgepodge, you know, whatever's easier. I think if I can go somewhere direct on Delta and I can't on American, put me on the Delta flight, you know, and, and vice versa. You know, if I can go somewhere direct on American, which isn't much Charlotte, maybe yeah. um, out of Providence, uh, TF Green Airport here in Providence is not very large. So the options are limited, but whatever, whatever, you know, works for the group, you know, if we can all get in at a similar time and I have to take a, you know, flight through Philly, I will. Is Providence the main one you fly out of? Yeah, that's the that's an airport close to me, about 20, 25 miles from here. So you probably have to connect like 99% of the time then? Yeah, I'm direct to Atlanta this week. Nice. But that, I think that's it <laughs> all year. Yeah, rough. So you're, you're not on the crazy status of Alex Hayden flying round trip to Alaska in one day just to get status on Delta. You're not at that level? I'm not even close to that level. And I hope, uh, honestly, I hope I don't get to that level because <laughs> yeah. that means, that means I'm, I'm in the airport a lot and oh, yeah. I'm, I'm good. Still one of the craziest stories that has ever been told on this show. I was, uh, yeah. I, I wanted him to be joking, but I knew he wasn't. And that just, uh, that made it all the more crazy. So I want to go back to Stafford for a little bit. That came into the picture a couple years after I think you moved back to Connecticut for the second time. It seems like, obviously, a match made in heaven. You can't say Stafford yeah. without saying Kyle Ricky and vice versa. How did that match come to be a few years back? Well, it started when I interned there in 98, 99, 2000, right up until I moved to Charlotte uh, for the most part. I was there as a track announcer um, on and off for – six or seven years before I made the move to Charlotte, okay. went to Charlotte, but stayed in touch with the Root family, often traveled back home, went to the Spring Sizzler. If I wasn't traveling for MRN, I would use my vacation time to, to come up and come to the local tracks, including Stafford. They went through uh, a bit of a change uh, with, with Paul and David, Mark and Lisa's sons, kind of taking more of a, a, a bigger role in the day-to-day -day operations of the Speedway back in, in 2017, 2018. Mark and Lisa have been running the, the racetrack for the most part since 1990. I think they started there full-time. So the Suns are becoming more involved. I got to know Paul. Paul, you know, I, I we meshed, we clicked. We started to do some videos from the pits, just fun, off my camera phone. And he's like, we should do more of these. And we started to do more. And, and it's kind of grown ever since, you know, five years now worth of growth. We have a big screen at the racetrack, which, you know, a lot of the, the production that we do during the week is is aired on, uh, you know, along with social media. So it helps with the race program. Um, it's uh, it's it's pretty special place and has turned into something pretty special these last five years. You can definitely tell it, it, it shows in the work and it shows every time we hear you on the PA. So I know on the PA is one of your main duties. What's your title? Do you have like a specific title or role 
at the racetrack? Because besides doing the PA stuff, I know you have your hands on a lot of different pods. Bonza Tufa's sidekick, who is my coworker at the Stafford Motor Speedway. <laughs> I know there's a lot, a lot of videos out there with uh, with Bonza and I in them. Uh, you know, I guess digital media creator, uh, I guess would be the the title. I mean, we do, you know, previews every Monday. We do reviews every, you know, Sun or previews Friday, reviews Monday. Um, driver profile pieces that we edit and put together, yeah. fun pieces that we put together, whatever they need. Um, you know, but they want content. They want con like nonstop content. So we last year we did 50 pieces, uh, about two minutes, three minutes a piece, reviewing every spring sizzler in its history leading into the 50th running of the event. This wow. year we looked back at all of the winners, all 27 winners of the spring sizzler and now they will air every couple of days leading into the race in april so um we have a preview show coming out that we're working on for each of the divisions so there's a lot going on and it, and it never stops you know we have the cart program on monday nights wild thing carts so once we get rolling it's it's uh, it it goes pretty quick i have to admit i may not fully understand maybe like half the stuff that stafford's twitter puts out but I am always astounded at the sheer quantity of content that you guys are pumping out and not just the quantity, but the quality of it all as well. Like that's the thing you got to strike a balance, right? Cause yeah. obviously if you just pump stuff out to pump it out, it kind of defeats the purpose. But again, the, the limited knowledge of modifieds and short track racing that I had coming into, you know, the last couple of years and that I've gained now, gives me a way bigger appreciation for the job that you guys do marketing your short track the way that you do, which kind of leads me to this point of Stafford being where it's located geographically. Again, the Northeast, a racing rich area, a lot of heritage there. I mean, that is probably one of, if not the premier short track in the U.S. How have you seen the growth and development and evolution of short track racing change in your time being so closely associated with it oh that's a loaded question um you have to you have to keep up with the times right and the biggest battle that i can remember 10 15 years ago was social media stay off of it we don't want to give things away we don't want to hear your opinions we don't you know we want people to buy tickets we don't want to we don't want to give the product away online we don't want to stream Stafford has embraced all of that in the last few years. You know, we don't want anybody to have onboard cameras. You know, we've heard that from short tracks because it could be an advantage. Not everybody can have them, whatever. Every, I think every car Stafford now runs an onboard camera. We use those highlights. You see them on Twitter, the clips, you know, that they, they choose on a fairly regular basis. Um, we have, or they, the Aroots, have adapted to the changing culture so well um, that I think it has really helped that facility grow the last couple of years. Um, the double hooked bar, um, which if if you've ever come to Stafford, we'll introduce you to the double hooked bar off of turn four. I look forward the big, to it. The big screen they put up last year. I mean, it's this monster of a screen that changed the game on Friday nights. Not every track up here and in the country has evolved like that. Maybe they can't. Maybe they don't have the staffing. They don't have the funding. Um, Stafford 
you know, I mean, they've always been a, a top tier racetrack. They're still, I believe, you know, obviously a top tier racetrack. They have evolved and, and they've done a really, really nice job of adapting to the culture and the young kids, you know, I mean, trading cards this year, uh, all these young kids that have never, never opened a pack of trading cards before, because it's really not part of this generation. Um, you know, we, we sold a lot of 2023 driver trading cards this year to young fans that want a photo of the drivers that they see race on Friday nights. And, you know, I think that has gone, a, you know, just part of the evolution of developing new race fans and, and, and new competitors, you know, years down the road. To your point, it's been on the cutting edge. It's been in the upper echelon of facilities, management, race product on the racetrack. Yep. That's in my opinion is part of the reason why, SRX decided to start their venture at your racetrack. What was the benefit and the boom that you guys saw from that series doing what they did at your facility? It was huge. It's still huge in year three. Um, as the the voice of that night and year, year two, nerve-wracking, especially that first year because nobody had any idea what to expect. The yeah. SRX folks, they had never done this before. The Stafford folks, we, you know, we've never done a major national event where we have to have a TV compound in ingress the parking and lot. Egress, my friend. Yeah, right. And, but we, we got it together. Uh, we we held the event. It was a sold out crowd. It was a massive boom. I, I think running our modified program before, you know, before the TV cameras come on the air, introduced a lot of people to to modified racing you know no one had any idea who keith rocco was two years ago and and mike christopher jr and brian narducci and and maybe never saw modified but now they know one they know the modifieds two they know that this is a pretty cool facility that runs on a fairly regular basis through april to october that we can come enjoy a Friday night at and, and, you know, on a normal Friday night, maybe have a little more leg room than, than we, you know, had on those SRX nights. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's been so huge to have that racetrack spotlighted uh, on national television and, you know, and, and with all the big superstar names, you know, Haley Castroneves coming to Stafford was 17 or 18 days after he won the Indy 500 two years ago was amazing getting Tony Stewart back there, Ryan Newman winning last year after what he had been through for the last couple of years, a lot of good storylines. And, and, you know, the event pretty special night when you sit back and look at it after the fact, but in the moment it's about as stressed as I've ever been. I can imagine that. But again, you, you, you guys pulled it off and you did a great job. I was not there, but I had a lot of people and I saw a lot of people on Twitter basically saying, this is a new venture. We have some familiar names and we hear a familiar voice in our ear. Kyle's on the PA. So you were pumping the people up as if they needed any uh, any reason to get all jumping. But that was a really fun night just watching from afar. And I think that kind of reaffirmed that, you know, SRX aside, short track racing as it's currently constructed. Sure, there are certainly areas of improvement. We've seen a lot of that this week. Um, we but have, it is, it is alive and well. And I think that Stafford is, is living proof of that. It is, it's alive and well. And we see it not only at Stafford, but at racetracks across the country. And if done right, if promoted, right. Um, if you, 
it can succeed. You know, we see it with the World of Outlaws. We see it with a lot of the dirt track programs, the, the big block modifieds up here in the Northeast that run on dirt, um, you know, eight times, nine times out of 10 sold out crowds, you know, in the New York, Pennsylvania region and New Jersey, and, and they put on great shows. Thunder Road, just north of here, uh, Dave Moody's track, you know, they have great race programs every week. Jeff Striegel, you know, he is, he's put Berlin on the map here the last couple of years. And, and that's why he's on the SRX schedule this year, most likely is because of, of what he has been able to do with that racetrack in his short time uh, in the leadership role. So you said you were nervous that night. I know you're probably nervous when you had your audition. How about your first Daytona 500 back, I guess, 10 years ago, 2013? What were the nerves then? Um, yeah, they were up there. Uh, you know, you climb that Sunoco Tower for a Daytona 500, and, and to my right, there's 100,000 people in the grandstands. Another, you know, what, 30,000 in the infield. Knowing that you're on 500 plus radio stations, the Armed Forces Network, Sirius XM, screaming. I think we were screaming at the time uh, online. It's big. You know, it's the biggest race of, of the year. It's a race that I grew up watching, you know, in the, in the late 80s and through the 90s and 2000s. And um, the races that people remember at the end of the year. And, you know, I didn't want to mess the last lap up. That was my biggest fear is, is messing the last lap up. Cause it can be easy to do, especially if, if they're crashing, which is more times than not, uh -huh. they did not that year. I believe Jimmy Johnson won and yep. we didn't have any flipping race cars or anything. Nope. So it, it was a fairly clean finish, but you know, um, don't mess it up. And, and I remember, you know, they get the white flag and my heart's pumping. I was so nervous, but you know, it worked out. Speaking of messing stuff up, everybody does now and then. Uh, we yeah. joke with Mike about his Western old processional that he had on the air last year. Uh, do any mess-ups of yours come to mind, whether it was on a live broadcast mm. or on a, on a show during the week? Because I'm sure in your time, you've been on the air long enough that you yeah. definitely have messed up at some point. Do any come yeah. to mind for you? Nothing major. I mean, there's a lot too of perfect, stuff. Kyle. Perfect. No, 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 no. There's a lot of little stuff. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can find, if you nitpick these shows, you you can find a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, you know, I'm scared always to call the finish wrong. That's my, my big one. Um, I don't know. I've never, I don't know. I've never remember anything that has stayed with me. You know, if you really mess up, yeah, yeah, it's like it, it stays with you for for a long time, and I can't remember anything. Uh, yeah, I, okay, Mexico City, scene set. I forget we're a part of the track on that. You know, I this is our fourth trip there, two thousand seven, and you know now from Killingly, Connecticut. You know, they'll they'll leave my view and go into the view of Kyle Ricky from Killingly, Connecticut, and it was just blank. Like I, it's like, where am I? I'm on a scaffold outside of the racetrack. <laughs> and then I forget who I'm throwing to. It was 45 seconds of just terror and <laughs> stumbling and fumbling and just get me out of this. And usually I write things down, bullet points. I don't know why I didn't. That, I think it was raining. So I don't think I, I did that. I think a race was in the rain. And yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. You're in a different country, all discombobulated. I'll give you a pass. <laughs> it was 
yeah, that was that's one that has stayed with me. Okay. Just cool. I, don't, I don't know what turn I'm in. I don't know who's after me. Don't know where I am. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's what it was. Don't know what series is on the track, but hey, you you survived that. You did the race. You lived to tell the tale. So all good there. Um, another race I want to bring up was the Rolex 24 broadcast in 2014. I I don't Boy, even know digging. the intricacies of it. So what were what was that like? Did you guys broadcast for all 24 straight? We. We did two years in a row, back-to-back, where we did all 24 hours straight. Uh, I think there were 10, 10 of us total. 2014, might have been 2014 and 2015, because I did the, the Rolex 10 years in total. 06 was my first, just doing the turn. Oh, wow. We did up, for, for the first eight years, we would do updates. We would do the first hour as a network, and we would come back and do 30 minute updates 5 p.m 10 30 p.m 8 a.m and then we would do the last hour those last two years we did the full race i don't know why but we did (laughs) and there were only i think 10 of us so i would do the first or i did the first hour and a half or two hours from the turn usually on the back straightaway in the bus stop chicane um I would do the updates from the turn. No, we didn't do updates. I would do an an hour about 6 p.m. from the turn. Then I would go to bed or try to. I mean, can you sleep in the middle of the Rolex? No. And then I would do the overnight shift from the booth from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., I think, with one pit reporter. And the lights, you know, were only, what, 40% illuminated at the time. So it's fairly dark outside. The last year we did it, the fog rolled in. And the last hour of my booth shift was under caution because, you know, you couldn't even see the front straightaway. All you could see were the caution lights blinking from the tower. And Good that was it. That. You couldn't see the what, – what's that? Good luck with that. Yeah. You couldn't see the race cars. You had no idea who was on pit road. You had no idea where they were on the racetrack. Um, because the caution lights on the pace car wouldn't even, you know, unless it was on the front stretch, you couldn't see anything. So they just put the cars under caution. And the last hour of that broadcast for, for my portion in the booth was under caution and it was rough and it stayed under caution until the sun came up. I don't know, an hour, roughly an hour later. And then it went back to green, but it was a long day. And then you go back to the turn for the last hour after trying to sleep for a few hours and in the bus in the infield, but it's a, it's a, it's long. It's fun. It was different. I don't know if I'd want to do it again, but it was a, it was a fun experience. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I don't know how I'm going to segue here. I hope that since you did that, you rewarded yourself with a magical trip to Disney world, just down the road <laughs> from the world center of racing. Anybody that yeah. knows you, Kyle knows that you love, love, love Disney. I do. Where did that passion come from? family grew up going you know that's what we did as a family back in the 80s we would go to disney back when it was two parks and three resorts that you had to choose from you know before now now it's what 26 resorts and and four parks you would know i uh and and what's that you would know yes yeah and and you know you grow up with it and you appreciate it more when you get older and i remember a few years ago 2018 2019 I sat on Main Street for a couple of hours. I'm like, they do this. This is before COVID. They do this every day. You know, the parades, the, the 
everything that makes that property tick. And it, it, you know, boggles my mind to this day, what they do, how they yeah. do it. It's still fun. I still enjoy the fireworks. I still enjoy the Haunted Mansion ride. Um, but to really see what goes into, it's a big stage. And when you drive under that Welcome to Walt Disney World sign pulling on the property, you're in essence on this massive stage. All the hotels are on part of the set, getting to and from the parks, part of the experience on the monorail and on, on the boats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the years, it just has amazed me that they pull this off for the most part every day. And, you know, you become more appreciative of it. It's hard, harder now to afford um, as the prices continue to climb on the old Walt Disney world property, but, you know, still fun, still enjoyable. And, you know, I'll be doing it here again, probably in the fall. I was going to say, how many times a year do you think you go? Lately, just once. Um, okay. Just one time. You know, the there was a time where I did two, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at Stafford. I wasn't doing as much with MRN. You're busy. There's a lot more. There's a lot more going on now. Um, but, you know, I still, you have to make time, you know, even... Paula Root told me today, you have to make time to vacation. That's one important thing is when the season's over, the Arut family closes up shop, goes on vacation, and he encourages, you know, all of, I say all, Bonsa and I to, to go and do the same thing. Go just get away. And, you know, Disney is my place to, to go and get away. Uh, some quick hitters as it pertains to Disney. Favorite park? <sighs> Now, probably Epcot. Okay. Favorite ride or favorite attraction? Favorite attraction is the Haunted Mansion. Okay. Uh, favorite Disney character? Stitch. Ooh. Okay. Good call there. Why no Lilo? No. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Lilo's never out in the parks. Stitch okay. is always out in Tomorrowland. Can have breakfast with Stitch the Polynesian. I don't know. I like Stitch. Right. Like his personality. We stand Stitch. I, I agree with that. Uh, does it make you feel magical when you step in the gates? When you step on the hallowed grounds? Yeah. Yeah, even as a 43-year-old adult that's been going for 30 years, yes, I still feel good. the magic. Maybe not as much as, you know, it's a different kind of magic it's than when I was. magic. Yeah. It's adult magic, yes. And, you know, I still, when you when you walk through the train station at the Magic Kingdom and you come out in, in Town Square, there's nothing like it. All right. Uh, somebody or something that everybody also knows about you if they follow you on social media. You love racing. You love Disney. And boy, do you love selfies. I My do. God. I, I remember I the first time that I was in a Kyle Ricky selfie. It was <laughs> at the NASCAR Home Track Awards Banquet. I want to say probably 2019, right before COVID. I was, was in a selfie with you and Dylan Welch, and wow, I if I hadn't made it before that, I sure as hell made it that night because in a Kyle Ricky selfie, that is that's some high praise right there. So first of all, thank you for blessing me with your presence <laughs> and your camera roll. Uh, second of all, I know you love taking selfies with different celebs that are at the racetrack when you're there, and you you interview a lot of them that you hear on the Motor Racing Network. Can you give me like? a Mount Rushmore or a top five list uh -huh. of celebrities or just anybody that you've seen at the racetrack that you've gotten Kyle Ricky selfies with. I'm dying to know. Okay. Lou Graham, lead singer of Foreigner. Okay. 
Adam Sandler, comedian. Okay. Jason Biggs, American Pie. The the original, Hillary Duff. Okay. And John Krasinski from The Office, Jim. That's I a good. That's, that's a good list right there. I think that no, I, I got to put Chevy Chase in there as well. I mean, how do you skip okay. Chevy Chase? Um, he's probably in the top six. I don't know who to boot from the top five, so we'll make it six. So it's it's kind of a cliche question because you guys run into a lot of different celebrities, and we cover race car drivers for a living that are celebrities to a lot of people. Have you ever gotten starstruck when you either meet somebody of celebrity status or if you're even interviewing them for MRN? Have you ever gotten starstruck? Hillary Duff, probably that first yeah. moment. It's like, you know, I kind of, she's a Disney person, you know, kind of grew up with her. She was a few years behind me, but, you know, knew of her. Um, and when I found out she was at Kentucky Speedway that day, it's like, okay, I need to to meet her. And then they're like, oh, well, we have you on the list to interview her. It's like, all right, what the hell am I going to ask Hillary Duff? Together. Oh my God. And, and, you know, there's a few PR reps there from, from then it was the Bush series. They knew I was about to pass out. So they thankfully had their cameras and they took pictures of me interviewing her. And I thought I was going to die in the moment, but yeah, he, she was a big one. Um, interviewing Blake Shelton a few years ago was pretty cool. Um, he, he just missed the top five, I guess. Um, yeah, so who else? I don't know. There's been so many. All the Pawn Star guys from list. the Travel Channel. I mean, I have a folder on my computer, and it's 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 pretty pretty cool. Of course, you have a folder on your computer. I I didn't. Yeah, I think you're second. in. I'm in it. I think so. Wow. I think well, I, was, I, mean, I definitely. I think I got added on Facebook. Uh, that picture of me got added on Facebook. I remember. I, I think I like woke up the next morning. To a notification, Kai Ricky tagged you in a photo. This can only be one photo, ladies and gents. And man, I was right. I was stoked. Um, all right, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, just got a couple more quick things for you. You, you have accomplished so much over this 10, 15, 20 year period of being in motorsports, whether it's in NASCAR, at Stafford, the whole nine. Is there anything else left? For you to do is there anything on your bucket list that you'd like to do professionally in motorsports professionally i don't you know i've always wanted to work at a racetrack full-time that's something i wanted to do before mrn i remember talking to rust out at thompson can i work here is there an opportunity and, and you know it's a small family-run racetrack and there wasn't back then real opportunity he was their full-time guy yeah if i you know get hit by a bus tomorrow. Sure. Maybe you might get the job, but you know, he was, he was there and had been there for years. Now that I'm at Stafford more, you know, I kind of see me hopefully, you know, growing into a, a bigger role there down the road. Um, you know, there's a lot of employees that have worked at Stafford for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years that are beginning to retire. Um, and, and, you know, their health just isn't allowing them to, to be at the track as much. And with us taking on a cart program and, and doing some other stuff, you know, there's, there's more opportunity. And I, I feel that I've kind of taken advantage of some of that opportunity in the last five years and hope to grow off of that opportunity the next few years. 
I can't complain. You know, I've announced at Daytona. You mentioned the Daytona 500s, the, the Rolexes, the, the Grand Am races at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I mean, it's so cool to call the start of a Grand Am race and hear your voice echoing through the front stretch of that canyon of Grandstand at, at Indy. Pretty cool. Bristol, you know, all the, all the, the national tracks that you grew up watching as a kid and being able to announce that and do PA for in some instances um amazing opportunity i don't know what's left at that level i mean i'm happy in radio and and would like to you know maybe grow more take what i learned on the national level and maybe bring it back to to where i grew up at the short tracks at stafford love that love that last thing you remember back in the day when we co-hosted coast to coast i do i was just thinking back on that i was prepping for the interview and i'm like are there any fun stories that i can rib Kyle about. I texted a couple of your coworkers, um, to their credit, they did not bite. And I basically was like, is there anything I can get them on? And they were like, nothing that you can air. It's like, all right, fine. Um, so we'll save that for the off air show. But yeah, I was, I was thinking back, I think Hannah, Hannah had something else going on that day or something. And, uh, I got asked if I wanted to co-host and if I wanted to do it at MRN. So I drove six hours down there was on on the show for 22 minutes or whatever. Got my car and drove 6 hours back home and That's I don't regret fault. it. It was great. Yeah. Good that, times that was before, back then, huh? B- before the Zoom days. Yeah, it was. It was good times back then. I think uh oh my god, what was his name? Jacob, I think Jacob Gady, we had him on. That was like at the at the height of the um of the uh short track points battle, I think that one year. Yep. I forget who he was battling with, but I think he ended probably up winning. Peyton um, Sellers, probably. Probably, yeah. But I, I, I remember that because I, we mm-hmm. run into each other at the track almost whenever we're there together. Obviously, we always hang out and say hi. But I remember that day, and that was, I think, in 2018 or 2019, way back. But, hey, we're, we're, we're both That's doing not okay, way back. I would say. 2018 is not that way, way back. I mean, maybe for you, but. Yeah, maybe. Well, hey, we're both standing – we both got jobs. I think we're doing all right, Kyle. I think I think so. We're we're in a pretty good place. Yes. Well, man, I appreciate your time tonight. Again, don't know why you're talking to me at nine o'clock now on a Wednesday night, but I appreciate that you did it. Appreciate all that you do for short track racing, for motorsports as a whole, and all that you've done for me as well on a personal and professional level. So um I will see you soon. Safe travels down to Atlanta. And I look forward to our paths crossing. Maybe another selfie can be in the works. I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. Appreciate you having me and uh, look forward to seeing you at the track soon. My man. And we are back. Bit of a longer one, especially in recent weeks. Haven't gone upwards of an hour or so with a guest, but I appreciate Kyle giving me so much of his time. I know it's a busy time of year for him getting ready to head out to the ATL. And like he said, he's got nothing better to do on a random Wednesday night than talk to me. Come on. You got something better to do. I know it. Uh, Kyle, for real, thank you. I appreciate you. Appreciate your time and appreciate all that you've done over the years for this young buck trying to make his way in the industry. Time to put a bow on the West Coast swing. And no pun intended, it was the Bowtie Brigade once again, that one big out in the desert, Kyle Larson led the most laps, but Willie B, 
His teammate, William Byron, wins for the second week in a row. First time that he's won consecutive races in his Cup Series career, and he did it convincingly. Man, I know that there was that pit call at the end, and he got position on a restart and wound up passing Larson there in overtime, but still cannot take it away from old Willie B. He's got two wins already to start the season, and I know what you're thinking. Man, he must be off to a great start. He's got 10-plus playoff points already. Going to be in contention for the regular season championship. No, no, no. Not so fast because Wednesday afternoon at 12 o'clock noon, NASCAR laid the hammer. I feel like I've said that phrase a lot on this show. NASCAR laid the hammer, but it is apropos here because financially, the biggest penalty in NASCAR history. Here are the details. NASCAR confiscated the louvers from Hendrick Motorsports and also the 31 team of Colleg Racing with Justin Haley. They confiscated those on Friday at the racetrack. They did not race with the confiscated louvers. They raced with NASCAR-approved ones, but those confiscated louvers were taken back to the R&D Center for further evaluation and inspection. And upon that evaluation and inspection, they deemed that they were manufactured and you cannot do that to a single-source vendor-supplied next-gen part. What does that mean? That means an L2 penalty, which is 100 driver points, ouch, 100 owner points, ouch, the loss of 10 playoff points, ouch, four-race suspension for each crew chief, that's Alan Gustafson on the 9, that's Rudy Fugel on the 24, Cliff Daniels on the 5, and Blake Harris on the 48, they each get fined a hundred grand. And oh, by the way, Alex Bowman was the points leader. Not anymore. That drops him back to 27th or so. And now Justin Haley, by the way, so Trent Owens also gets the fine and the suspension and Colleg gets the fine and the points and all that stuff. Justin Haley has negative 40 points right now when it comes to the point standings in the NASCAR Cup Series, which is wild and kind of crazy to think about. Here's the bottom line. We've seen this penalty be applied before in a different sense, not to the louvers, but to modifying a single-source-supplied vendor next-gen part. I think RFK Racing got bit by it last year at an L2 level with that 100 points, $100,000 fine. This is huge because it's four hundred grand to one team. The previous fine that was the highest in NASCAR history is back in 2013, 10 years ago. That's when MWR got dinged. I think that was for uh, the jet fuel stuff that was going on. I don't think it was Spingate. I think it was the jet fuel stuff that Papa Siegel paid homage to in a Wayback segment a few episodes ago, I think. And this eclipsed that by 100 grand because it's 100 grand for each driver, each car, each team. Now, worth repeating as well Byron, Bowman, and Larson, they get a 100 driver point penalty. The nine team, they get 100 owner points. But no driver point penalty because Chase Elliott, he was obviously not driving the car. And Josh Berry, he has not declared and will not declare for Cup Series points because he's already declared for Xfinity Series points. So just a point of clarification there. And oh, by the way, Danny Hamlin, I love you. But you got to understand that when you admit to an action that's detrimental, on actions detrimental, NASCAR is going to view that as a detrimental action, and they are going to take action against that detriment. I think that made sense, right? 
You know what I'm trying to say, which is basically Danny Hamlin admitted on his podcast, which is phenomenal to listen to, by the way. Go check it out. That he wrecked Ross Chastain intentionally. His words, not mine. I let go of the wheel and said, you're coming with me, buddy. That's pretty much black and white, as concrete as it can get. So even though honesty is the best policy in his words and in mine as well, you can't admit to blatantly intentionally wrecking somebody and in NASCAR in terms of how they interpreted that in the rule book, changing the outcome of the race and not expect to get something. So what did he get? He got a 25 point docking and a $50,000 fine. He will not be appealing that. Uh, he said to tune in on Monday because he has some thoughts to share on his podcast, Actions Detrimental. Again, check it out. It's great after this one, obviously. But here's the thing. I love Denny Hamlin speaking his mind. I love Denny Hamlin telling it like it is. I love Denny Hamlin being honest and open and forthcoming. But again, you, you need to understand that just because you have freedom of speech doesn't mean that you're going to get away with everything. And I'm a bit frustrated as well because I, I agree to a certain extent with one of my mentors and colleagues, Jeff Gluck, by saying, well, now that he spoke his mind, nobody's going to speak their mind because we've seen what happens when you admit to something. NASCAR takes that to basically say, well, this was premeditated. This is not in the spirit of fair competition and integrity. So we have to penalize you for that. We saw it with Bubba Wallace a couple of years back. We saw it with Denny Hamlin this past weekend. I hope that this does not deter Denny from saying what he says and doing what he does on the pod and in general, or any driver for that matter, coming out and basically saying what they did and why they did it and how it is. But at the same time, if I'm Denny Hamlin and I don't want to lose 50 grand, which let's be honest to him, it's not that much, you know, I would have basically tiptoed around it and been like, yeah, it's a, it's a real shame what happened to Ross. Uh, you know, just, uh, just seemed to lose it there at the end. And then if anybody tried to poke the bear, just don't take the bait and say, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure he has gotten me back in the past. I, you know, It was just a racing incident to me. I consider this matter closed moving forward. Case closed, dismissed, goodbye. But that's not how it happened. And unfortunately for Denny Hamlin, those actions were indeed detrimental. All right, we are on to Atlanta Motor Speedway this upcoming weekend for the Ambetter 400, and I'm glad that it's 400 miles and not 500 because that was a long race last year, and 500 miles should not exist besides the Coke 600, the Daytona 500, maybe, maybe a Talladega race, uh, and the Southern 500. That That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. But I'm glad that they shortened the race a little bit. We'll see how the racing plays out. A year ago, we really had no idea what to expect with this racetrack. First race on the new repaved, reconfigured, reimagined Atlanta Motor Speedway. But now we know that it does indeed race like a super speedway. It's a shorter super speedway at that. Chase Briscoe called it the most mentally taxing race and racetrack that they have in NASCAR now. So we'll see if it kind of lives up to that billing and what we saw last year, which is a mix of a couple different things. Fast cars that handle well and can draft well running up front. Some underdogs getting into the mix. We remember what happened with Corey LaJoy last year and him coming oh so close to getting that win, which would not have counted towards the playoffs because he finished outside the top 30, but now that rule is nullified, so never mind. And pit strategy also could potentially come into play. 
I mean, we see on super speedways that manufacturers really stay close together and try to pit together, come out together, form packs together. Atlanta is not the same as Daytona and Talladega in that sense because the racetrack's not as big and the runs are not as big either because the track's smaller. But I still think that you are going to have some manufacturer alliances that do and don't come to fruition. I think that's going to play a part in the race that we see unfold on Sunday. Last thing, the, the new commitment line for Pitt Road is at the entry to turn three. That's going to make for a long, long pit entry. Going to have to watch your lights. Going to have to watch your speed. And if you get penalized on pit road under green, you might as well just throw your race out the window. Because instead of losing a lap when you come off a of turn four and you're coming to the commitment line, you have to do that entering turn three. That's probably going to take you an extra, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, which is an entire lap at Atlanta. So... Don't get a pit road penalty under green or under caution for that matter because it may cost you and it may cost you big. And with that, we're done for the day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Victory Lane, episode 177. I hope you like what you heard here today. And if you did, please do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on your favorite podcast platform of choice. Apple, Google, SoundCloud, the green app that everybody uses. You know what I'm talking about and you know where to find us. Please spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. I hope Kyle Ricky has told all of his friends and family and all of his friends and family are listening to me still blabber on. And if they're not, well, kick rocks. I'm kidding. I still love you. We'll be back next week to recap the racing action at Atlanta. Preview Coda Circuit of the Americas. And we'll see who I can wrangle up for a, a little chat here, one-on-one, -on, -one, on Victory Lane. Because, you know, it is the place everybody wants to be. I don't know if you know that or not. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>